Well, as we turn to Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6, which is reproduced for you at the top of page 1 of your, your notes, the section actually divides into four subparts. Uh, in verse 1, you have the serpent uh, speaking to Eve. Uh, in verses 2 and 3, you have Eve responding to the serpent. In verses 4 and 5, the third subpart, you have the serpent responding to Eve. And then in the fourth subpart, in verse 6, you have the response of Eve, uh, including uh, the transgression of taking and eating uh, the fruit uh, from the tree of knowledge of uh, good and evil and, uh, and giving it to her husband and both of them partaking of the, uh, the forbidden fruit. It's a, a very, very sobering, uh, very dark section of Scripture. But it, it's immensely practical uh, because it provides us with an insight into how the enemy of our souls works to undermine our faith, how he works to undermine our walk in Christ. And we, if we study it thoroughly, which I trust we will, we'll, we'll gain great insight. But what we see in Genesis 3 with the fall, the fall being defined as the initial sin that came into the world. Uh, the entrance of sin into the universe is a great mystery. How that happened in before uh, the incident in Genesis 3 is a great mystery. Uh, we do have some insight into it from other sections of Scripture, but we have great clarity as to how sin entered humanity, and that's really the section that we're looking at today in Genesis 3. What we see in Genesis 3 with the fall, the transgression of Adam, is the entire human race being plunged into sin. Uh, the scripture refers to that very specifically in Romans 5, verse 12. Paul writes there, Therefore, just as through one man, and that's Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And the way to sort of capsulize that would be two excerpts from the, one of the Reformed catechisms, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 13 is, did, did Adam and Eve continue in innocence? And the answer is no. Our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, um, succumbed to the temptation of Satan and, and sinned. How did they sin? They sinned by partaking of the forbidden fruit. What are the implications of that? A few questions later, 16, an excerpt from that is all mankind descending from Adam and Eve by ordinary generation, all sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. And that's exactly what took place. Adam is our federal head, and as he transgressed, we all transgressed in him. That's the uptake of Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. How did all sin? The answer is very simple. Because Adam sinned, and we sinned in Adam. He's our federal head. So all of this has cataclysmic results for all of humanity. And every Christian deals with temptations to sin uh, until we're glorified, until we are uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. We will continue to battle sin. Uh, we battle sin on, on three different uh, landscapes, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and those are not necessarily independent of each other. They're very much interrelated with each other. The scripture tells us that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. That's Satan himself. 
And so we know that we were born dead in sin. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that. We know that we battle against sin. So the question is, how does uh, Satan work to undermine our faith? How does he work to tempt us? How does he work to lure us into moral failure, to transgress against a holy God? And we have a template here in, in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6, specifically the first five verses. And... Um, so we want to live lives, of course, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And for that being the case, we need to understand how temptation works and, and how to resist it. And we have a template here because in Genesis 3, we have probably the classic uh, case study of temptation and failure in the face of temptation. The thesis of all of this is in bold about two-thirds of the way down page one. The thesis is by understanding how temptation works we can devise a strategy for victory over it. Those words are excerpted from Stephen Cole, who was uh, writing on this, this very section. You, you've heard the, the old adage, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so the, the upshot of that is if we want to be victors in battle, if we know the, the plots, the, the ways, the vagaries of the enemy, we know how the enemy operates, then we are forearmed and therefore we are forewarned and, uh, and so we have here uh, a, a very clear insight in exactly how the enemy works. And his general strategy has not changed over thousands of years. The world is around 5,800 years old, and it hasn't changed. The, the enemy continues to operate in essentially the same way. Well, Richard Phillips comments on this under the introduction. In Genesis 2, which we covered uh, very shortly ago, we peer into a paradise world where all is good. By Genesis 4, we encounter the malice and deceit we know so well. The bridge between paradise and our moral wilderness is the Bible's account of the fall of man in Genesis 3. The rest of the Bible, especially the gospel message of Jesus, is God's answer to our great need. So this is a very, very important chapter of Scripture, and we'll probably take three sections to, to look at this. First of all, we're going to look at the fall itself and the anatomy of temptation. And then we'll look at the, the consequences of the fall, Lord willing, next week. And then in the third section, we'll look at God's gracious response to the fall and, uh, and, and uh, the provision of salvation, which is recorded for us in Genesis 3.15. That deserves a treatment all into itself. But at the top of page two in your notes, A.W. Pink um, made several observations about what we learn in Genesis chapter 3, and each of those observations are prefaced by the word here, H-E-R-E. So here's this excerpt. Um, there are seven observations. In Genesis 3, here, we find the divine explanation of the present fallen and ruined condition of a race. Number two, we learn of the subtle devices of our enemy, the devil. Number three, we discover the spiritual effects of sin, man seeking to flee from God. Number four, we discern the attitude of God toward the guilty sinner. Number five, we are taught of the gracious provision which God has made to meet our great need. Number six, uh, we see the stream of prophecy which runs throughout all of the Holy Scriptures. That's the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel, Genesis 3.15, and the outworking of that in Scripture, in history. And then number seven, we learn that man cannot approach God except through a mediator. So you can see the weightiness 
of what is, is covered in Genesis 3. There, there really can't be anything much more important than what we're learning about in this, in this very fundamental uh, chapter of Scripture. So by way of a setting, just to sort of set the stage for Genesis 3, is we look at what Adam and Eve are experiencing prior to verse 6, uh, they are living in the best of all worlds, uh, unparalleled splendor, sinless perfection. Uh, the, the beauty of God's creation, all provided for Adam and Eve. They had each other. Uh, they had a one-flesh relationship with each other. They had perfect intimacy. They had pleasure in all that God had made. There was no sin in the world. Uh, there was absolutely uh, nothing happening in their lives that was impairing their, their fellowship with God. Uh, all of this was just a picture-perfect a representation of what life will ultimately like, be like when we are with our Lord in heaven. But, uh, but here we have a perfect world, uh, no sin, no failure, uh, until temptation took its toll and sin entered the world. It's important as we look at what takes place to consider the fact that a, a, an underlying reality in all of this is that there is a created order that God has made. As he, as he, first he made Adam, then he made Eve out of Adam. Uh, God created an imperative for Adam to reign and rule over his created world. Uh, he designed Eve specifically to be his help mate, his help meet to, to accompany him in fulfilling his mission. Uh, there is a, a relationship of um, subordination of the woman to the man because she was made from him and for him. Uh, and, and so we have all of this. There is a created order, and God has established in his directives to Adam uh, what he was to do and what he was not to do, and, and the perimeter that he was to, or the parameters, I should say, of what he could do. He could eat of any tree of the, of the, of the garden, with the single exception of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that was, that was the only restriction that there was. So God had given this imperative, this, this uh, declaration, uh, this command uh, to Adam. And Adam's role was to reign and rule over God's creation as vice regent, as the one that God had appointed to reign over his creation. And, and it, it, implicit in that is the responsibility of Adam to care for his wife and for his wife to be a help meet for him. And so all of this is the created order. And what we'll see as this unfolds is the approach of, of Satan himself in the, in the body of the serpent was to turn upside down all of God's created order and to subvert God's created order. And he is very methodical in the way he pursued that. I mentioned the fact that there is this relationship between Adam and Eve, uh, husband and wife. Uh, and this order was created before sin entered the world. This is the, God's design for the, the man and the woman. Uh, number one, uh, Adam was created first, uh, Genesis 2, verse 7. Uh, and then Eve was created, uh, Genesis 2, 18 through 22. And there, there is a, uh, an inference, a, a command that Paul draws from this very thing. Uh, and that is that a woman is not to exercise authority over a man in, in, in uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 13. Why? For. So we, we know that that little word for is providing an explanation, a basis for that directive. Why? Because Adam was formed first and then Eve. So if you wonder why 
the woman is to be subordinate to the man and not exercise authority over the man. The reason is that there is an order of creation. Man was created first and then Eve. That's Paul's directive under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Timothy 2. Secondly, uh, we have two key prepositions, from and for. Uh, Eve was taken out of man. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8, 9. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Uh, Eve was literally taken from the body of Adam. Adam was taken out of the dust. He was, he was created directly by man out of the dust. Eve was not created that way. Eve was created from the side of Adam. Neither was man created for woman, but the woman for man. Number three, on the top of the third page, Eve was designed or designated to be Adam's helper, Genesis 2, verse 18. Why was that? Because the Lord looked at Adam and he said, there is an imperative that I have given to Adam, and that is to reign and to rule, to exercise dominion over the creation, but he does not have one to help him to discharge this responsibility. And so what was his response to that? God created woman specifically to be that perfect partner, that perfect helper for man. And so for, for Adam to discharge his responsibility, his directive to reign and rule and to exercise dominion, the woman is an integral part of that because she was designed specifically to, to serve that specific role. So you have this authority structure. You have the directive that is given to Adam as to what he could do and what he could not do. Uh, you have the imperative that's given to Adam to exercise dominion over creation. You have a sequence of man being created first, Eve then being created from Adam, a sequence and, and a, an order of creation. And we know from the New Testament what the implications of that are, and that is that the man is to exercise dominion and the woman is not to exercise authority over the man. And, and, and so uh, we have all of that, uh, and, but it was all subverted by the, the plot of Satan himself. He went directly after the created order that God had established. Uh, Kenneth Matthews summarizes it this way. Uh, the woman listens to the serpent, the man listens to the woman, and no one listens to God. That's a, that's a pretty succinct way of looking at it. And that's specifically what took place. So you have the usurpation of authority that Eve uh, really took authority in her own hands by partaking of the fruit uh, but Adam did nothing to exercise his leadership role in her life. Both of them are culpable. Matter of fact, uh, it's, it's entirely arguable that the moral implications of Adam's sin are much greater than Eve's because Eve was, was tempted. Adam was not tempted. The scripture tells us that very specifically. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. It was a direct act of rebellion against God. But Eve did not go to her husband and, and uh, seek his direction uh, when she was being tempted. She, and so the, the outcome uh, is, is obvious. So what's interesting and, and tragic at the same time is before the fall, the only voice that Adam and Eve were listening to was God. He had given them the directive. Uh, we have Adam rejoicing uh, in the creation of Eve. He recognizes what a gift she is to him. Uh, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Thank you, God, for bringing this perfect helpmate into my life. He rejoiced over that. We talked about that last week. Uh, and so the two of them are enjoying a perfect life of innocence and intimacy and openness. Uh, they were naked and not ashamed. Uh, there was no impediment between themselves and fellowship with God or each other. 
uh, and there was no impairment as to their devotion with God. All of this was absolutely perfect, uh, and, and so devotion to God was a very natural uh, thing and effortless, if I can use that expression. Uh, nothing to hide, nothing to protect. Uh, God was the center of their lives, not themselves. Uh, and so what we see, this is about three-fourths of the way down, is in chapter 2, verse 25, Adam and Eve are described as sort of the epitome of innocence and intimacy. They were naked and not ashamed. And then in chapter 3, verse 7, after the, the fall, after the transgression, uh, they are in a pit of guilt and estrangement. Uh, they have descended from innocence to guilt, and that descent affects all of us today all of us, because all of us descended from Adam by ordinary generation, and all of us sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. And so the, the implications of this are, are, are just traumatic, to say the least. Well, how did this all take place? Verses 1 through 5 describe a dialogue between uh, the serpent and Eve. And, and I sort of broke that out for you earlier. You've got the serpent approaching Eve with a question, and then you have Eve in verses 2 and 3 responding uh, in a very defective way to Satan himself. In verse 4 and 5, you have Satan directly abrogating the directive of God, and then in verse 6, you have partaking of the forbidden fruit. So in verses 6 and 7, you've got a descent into the pit. So top of page 4. Enter the serpent. How did this all take place? Uh, Genesis 3, verse 1. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent itself, understand this, was not full of sin. The, the serpent was created. When God looked at all that he'd made in, Gen in Genesis 1, 31, he looked at it and it was all very good. There was nothing in, in wrong about the serpent. The serpent was indwelt. Uh, if I can use that expression, occupied, empowered by none other than Satan himself. And so the battle was not between man and the serpent. The battle was between mankind and the enemy himself, the devil himself. The serpent was the vehicle that God used. There, there is in some philosophical circles this thought process that you have good and evil as sort of an eternal antithesis to each other. That is not the case at all. God created everything good. And then you have entrance of sin into the world and evil into the world. And, and sin is, is this cosmic disruption into the beauty that God had made. And it's never been the same since. And so it, it was, when God created everything, it was beautiful in his sight, perfect. It was all very good. He declared it to be very good. And then in Genesis 3, you've got the introduction of transgression against the holy God. Well, what do we know about the, the serpent itself? We, we, we know... Not much other than the fact that it's described as more crafty or more subtle than any other beast of the field. Um, we, we know that uh, it was only after the fall that the serpent was condemned to crawl on its belly in the dust of the ground. Uh, so what does that mean? Does that mean that the serpent was walking erect? We don't know. We, we could conjecture. We don't know. All we know is that the effects of the serpent were subsequent to the fall. And we don't know whether the other animals spoke. We don't know whether this, the, the serpent spoke. We, you know, we don't know whether that was common. We have to suspect that this was extraordinary, that suddenly you have this beast that God had made, this creature that God had made that spoke to Eve, and she listened to what he said. The voice that she heard was the voice of, of Satan himself. 
a fallen angel. What do we know about Satan? We know the scripture tells us that he is a murderer from the beginning. We know that he is a liar. We know he is the father of lies, John 8, 44. We know that he is a fallen archangel. Uh, we know that he was created uh, with uh, a, a beautiful role to play uh, as an archangel. Uh, we know that he has uh, great power, uh, not perfect power, but uh, great power. And we know that prior to uh, Genesis 3, at some point between the time when he was created in Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, there was an angelic rebellion. Uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and Revelation 12 and Jude 6 are the only passages that come to mind that specifically deal with this. But at some point between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, there was a, an angelic rebellion uh, introduced by Lucifer, later known as Satan or the devil himself. And the, so you have the introduction of sin into the cosmos. Uh, and then suddenly, uh, or subsequently in Genesis 3, you have the introduction of sin into humanity as Satan himself tempted successfully uh, both Eve and ulti ultimately uh, introduced uh, transgression through Adam uh, as well. So Satan possessed this serpent, uh, and, and the purpose was to beguile, to lure, to trick, to deceive the woman. And that, that's exactly what the, the devil did. John Murray makes this comment that what, what we see in Genesis 3 confirms that the reality and activity of Satan in the demonic order. Back of all that is visible and tangible in the sin of this world, there are unseen spiritual powers. And so we need to realize that what was taking place in Genesis 3, 1 through 6, is you have a, a woman who is being confronted with a very powerful, evil, spiritual person, uh, an archangel himself operating through the serpent, speaking to her, leading her into temptation and ultimately failure, and then Adam uh, participating in Eve's transgression and ultimately introducing sin into God's created world. And the results we've talked about uh, just a moment ago with sin and death and condemnation. Just as an aside, I won't dwell on this because it, it's, it's, just, it, it's a matter of some uh, question, but, but sometimes the question is, did, uh, did God know? Was this unaware? Uh, to, to, it was unaware to Adam and Eve, but was it unaware to, to God? And the answer, of course, is no. The answer, of course, is no. It was, it was not unaware to God. God is sovereign. He is omniscient. He's omnipotent. All of this uh, is part of uh, what God knew about. And, and ultimately, uh, part of, of the way that God had ordained things to, 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 apparently, he never condones sin, he never orchestrates sin, but this did not take place outside of the knowledge of God. I can't go further than that because I'm sort of in the deep end of the pool right now trying to explain how this all took place, but I can tell you that God was not oblivious to what was taking place, but you've got this very uh, battle going on. H.C. Leupold, a, a, a very prominent Lutheran commentator from years ago, made an interesting observation that the devil's temptation shows God's desire for a true and positive morality and obedience. To do what God desires merely because one cannot do otherwise has, top of the next page, no moral worth. To do the right where there has never been an opportunity of doing wrong is not moral behavior. The opportunity to do otherwise must present itself. 
It is chosen obedience that God desires, and that required Adam's temptation. The point that's being made is that they were in a condition of probation, that Adam and Eve were in a condition of probation. They were in a state of innocence. Uh, They were left to the freedom of their own will. They had, prior to the fall, the capacity to do only good or or to do evil, but they were in in a probation stage. Uh, And with the introduction of temptation, uh, they, they fell. Uh, and so they, with the rest is, is history. Uh, but uh, the, the tragedy is that the voice that they had always listened to uh, prior to Genesis 3 was God's voice. Now, we don't know exactly how much time transpired between Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 3. We don't know. We, we shouldn't really conjecture on how much time uh, elapsed. Uh, but we know that God had been speaking and directing uh, Adam and Eve. We know that God gave very specific direction to Adam as to what he could do, what the limits of his freedom were. And we know that everything that was beautiful was because of God's word. God spoke and it was. God said, let there be and there was. Let there be light and there was light. Uh, let there be stars in the heaven and there were stars in the heaven. Let there be beasts in the field. There were beasts in the field. Let there be a separation of, of uh, light and darkness. And and the dry land and the waters, etc. Every time God spoke by his word, there was, and it was beautiful, and it was ultimately perfect. And he looked at it all, and it was absolutely wonderful. It could not have been better. God designed it and said it's all very, very good. And so they'd been listening to God's word, and God's word was uh, the, the, the essence of their life uh, together. And this was the word that, that Satan now attacks uh, and, and so how does he, he do about it? What, what does he do to actually uh, proceed down that path? The reason that I called this the anatomy of temptation in the fall was because you, you may recall the, 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 the preface, the thesis on this. If we study what actually took place, we can, we can and we must learn from it because it shows exactly how Satan operated in Eve's life and we do well to look at it in in great detail. Uh, Satan's method had uh, two purposes. Uh, One of them uh, is he approached uh, the woman rather than the man. That was not an accident. It was very intentional. Uh, Number one, why? Because Adam had been given the charge uh, to keep or guard the garden. It was Adam's role to do that very thing. Uh, And then secondly, uh, the, the prohibition Uh, had been given to him by God. So Adam had the directive and Adam had the command, uh, the command to exercise dominion and the command to eat of every tree uh, with the exception of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So those two things are are part of the backdrop. And so Satan comes in and he is methodically working to turn upside down God's created order. What's God's created order? God exercised dominion over man. He created him directly, and he gave him his command. So the, the, the command went to Adam. Adam was given Eve as his helper so that he could discharge his responsibility. Eve was responsive to Adam, and all the beasts were subordinate to Adam and Eve as they discharged their responsibility to exercise dominion over the world. And so you have Satan coming in to completely upset uh, all of God's created order. Top of, of um, the next page, page 6. So let's unpack how this all took place. Question that is raised in chapter 3, verse 1. The, the Satan is more crafty or, or cunning than any other beast of the field. And he says to the woman, Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? 
He opens this dialogue with what some people have described as a, an incredulous tone. You can only imagine, did God say that you can eat of, not eat from any tree of the garden? I, I don't know the exact intonation, of course, of the way it was expressed, but, but he, was, he was raising a question. He was introducing a doubt. He was introducing a sort of a quizzical state into Eve's life, uh, very subtle. He did not begin by directly abrogating or denying God's word. He, it, much more subtle than that. Uh, he introduced the assumption that God's word is subject to judgment. He, he's asking a question, did, did he really say, did, did, what did he mean by that? Did, did he really say that you can't eat of any tree of the garden? And so, uh, he, secondly, uh, it, it's very um, noticeable if you're looking at the original language, but he didn't use the, the name of God that was introduced in chapter 2, verse 4. Remember, we, we went through this. Elohim was used in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 1 goes um, through the fifth day, and then in the sixth day, uh, pardon me, the sixth day, then the seventh day in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the, the Sabbath that God has created, Elohim is used. In chapter 2, verse 4 through chapter 4, you have... Um, Yahweh Elohim, or the Lord God, that is used in every case except for this interchange between Satan and Eve. Every other place he uses God's, co the God's covenant name is used, Yahweh or Jehovah or Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R-D, his covenant name. There was a responsibility that was given to Adam uh, to, to live up to this directive from God, and they had a covenant relationship. But Satan does not use that, that name for God, and Eve reciprocates by also falling into the same trap. She doesn't use his covenant name either, and it's interesting to notice that because after this whole episode, guess what? It reverts back to Yahweh Elohim. But during this interchange between the devil and in, in the person of the serpent and Eve, the name changes away from God's covenant name. One commentator, J.G. Voss, Voss, says this, in chapter 1, Elohim, signifying God as creator, was used in every instance to refer to God. But in chapters 2 through 4, the title Yahweh Elohim is everywhere employed, combining his creator and covenant redeemer names everywhere except everywhere except in this deadly dialogue of chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It's noticeable by its change. So there is this incredulous tone, number one, that Satan uses. Has God said this? What did he mean by that? And then this conscious disuse of God's personal covenant name as he introduced this distortion of God's word. So he asked this question, can you eat of any tree of the garden, of the garden, and that—that's a distortion. A, a distortion. It's a travesty of what God had said. What God had said in, in the imperative that was given to Adam is, "You may eat of every tree, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." Satan says, "Did he say that you shall not eat of any tree?" Do you, do you see the difference between that? How is he characterizing God by asking this question? God is a very stingy, prohibitive God. You can't eat of any tree. Remember that God created all the trees to do two things, to be pleasant to the sight and good for food. And Satan comes in, has God said that you can't eat of any of these trees? Well, no, he never said that. 
Satan comes in and says, he asks that very question, but God had said, you can eat of every single tree, enjoy. It is pleasant to the sight, it is good for the eyes. It is pleasant, and it's good for food, pardon me. And, and so Satan introduces this distortion and travesty. God's generosity was being perverted by Satan's question to suggest that God was stingy. He didn't want them to enjoy what, they had, what God had made for them. Satan's approach was so subtle that Eve did not suspect that God's word was being attacked. Notice he, he didn't directly attack God's word. He attacked God's character. It was just a, what she might have seen it as an innocent question, but a seed of doubt had been planted in Eve's heart, and it would bear fruit. And then he attacks God's word. This is the bottom of page six. So he's got these aims. Number one, his first aim is to deceive the woman into doubting God and mistrusting his word, and then later to attack the very character of God. He does both of those. He, he, he creates this doubt about God's goodness, uh, and then he, he causes distrust in God's word. Uh, top of page seven. When he asked this question in, 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 cha- in chapter three, verse one, he was not uh, looking for information. That was not the devil's goal. He wasn't uh, doing an, in, an inquiry, an innocent inquiry. He was attempting to subvert the woman's thinking about God. That's how he operates today. And he was exaggerating the prohibition. God had actually stated, you may eat of every tree of the garden except only one. And Satan asked, can he eat of any tree? Ian Provan makes this interesting comment. The vocabulary of God in Genesis 3 indicates freedom and blessing. You can eat of every tree, every tree of the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The vocabulary of the serpent indicates prohibition and restriction. Has God said that you can't eat of any tree? Do you see the difference? There is a, a remarkable difference there. Satan's question suggested that God is essentially a prohibitive uh, God and does not want his creatures to enjoy their lives. That happens today, doesn't it? That when we look at this, it, when we, we struggle with temptation, do we really believe that when God tells us what to do and what not to do, that his design is for his glory and for our good? Every time we sin, we're essentially denying that we believe that God has our ultimate good at heart. We're saying that he, he doesn't know what's best for us because we're seeking our own way. That's the essence of sin is autonomy and rebellion against the very character of God. It had never you know, been, been evident to, to Eve that God's word was subject to some interpretation. Um, Clyde Francesco says it's the first time she'd ever heard anyone doubt God. She didn't know that that was even an option. So then Eve responds in verses uh, 2 and 3. And there, there are several ways in which it was a grossly, fatally defective response. Number one, uh, she diminished God's word. Number two, she added to his word. And then number three, she softened his word. So how did that happen? Number one, God had said in chapter 2, verse 16, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but Eve leaves out the, very, the, the word every and simply says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She, she diminishes God's word from every tree to trees. She's limiting the, the, the extent of God's goodness. Number two, uh, she adds to God's word. She says, but God, Elohim says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, neither shall you touch it. God never said that. She added to God's word. Some people have said she was the first legalist. She added to, to, the, to, the, to the command of God by adding a restriction that simply wasn't there. Uh, she magnified uh, God's strictness. 
And that, that's typical. This is the inset of, of us as, as her lineage. When we don't like a prohibition or warning, we magnify its strictness. The suggestion that our superior is unjust mitigates our culpability. If we don't think that our, our superior has our best interest at heart, that he really is withholding something from us, then we, we begin to justify in our own mind that we've got to look out for ourselves. And then she softens God's word with respect to judgment. And it's subtle, but, but Satan actually exploits this, absolutely exploits it. What God had said was that you shall surely die, surely die. Chapter 2, verse 17, strongest possible way you could express that. And Eve simply says, lest you die. She left out the word surely. This seems like a, a, these minor things. It's not minor. I, I'm reminded of the Puritan Richard Rogers. There was someone that once said, um, Richard, I really like you, but you're awfully precise. Do you know what his response was? I serve a precise God. Every word of God is of critical importance. And when we begin to take out words and we begin to add words and we begin to modify God's word, we are on extremely dangerous ground at that point. And that's exactly what Eve was doing. She diminished his word, she added to his word, and she actually softens the word of judgment. And, and think about that. What is it that Satan likes to do today? He actually likes to soften the whole doctrine of God's judgment and take that off the table. Nobody likes to talk about God's judgment, but God has said, you will surely die. And she took that word surely out of there. She, she mitigated, she softened it. And so down at the bottom, Kent Hughes says this, Eve paradoxically softened God's word by merely saying, lest you die. She left out the word surely. The certitude of death was removed. So in the extended sentence that makes up verses 2 and 3, Eve in a breath at once diminished, added to, and softened God's word. Her revisionist approach to the holy word of God put her in harm's way. To recap, top of page 9, what had the devil done? What had the devil done? He had planted doubts into a woman's heart, and instead of carefully reciting what God had said in a way that God had said it, Notice this, Eve allowed the devil, Satan, to reframe the situation. She went on his turf. She allowed the devil himself to recharacterize what God had, or, or, had dictated. She was now on Satan's terms. And the result was distrust that served his purpose. H.C. Leupold makes this comment, already the attitude of the heart to God is clearly no longer seen to be one of perfect trust. The suspicion which Satan so clearly, cleverly suggested was allowed to take root. And that's exactly what took place. It takes place today. As we look at the way that the devil operates as he subverts God's word and he begins to mischaracterize God's word and he begins to make us question what he's doing, we're, we're, we're suddenly we're very vulnerable. She didn't realize how vulnerable she was. So the first thing he did was to undermine trust in the authority of the Bible. Did God really say... Is the Bible really authoritative? Is it clear? Is it, is, is it sufficient? And it's all of those. It is clear. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. It's all of those. And, and the, all of those, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that Satan produces doubt merely by raising suggested questions. He didn't offer any proof, but only insinuation. And the same tactic applies today. There's, a, there's a, One commentator goes on to make this remark about evolution, which is another lie. 
Um, the case for evolution rests not on evidence, but on an assertion backed up by cultural intimidation. If you don't believe that, you haven't been in a university recently. It's backed up by cultural intimidation. Evolution is a theory, and it, it, it's, it's undermined by the facts. But, it, but, but there's immense pressure on students to acknowledge that evolution is truth. It's not truth. It's a theory, and it's a false theory. But the, an enormous pressure on students to acknowledge that this is true and creationism is some type of fantasy. That's, it's, that's a satanic deception. So down at the bottom, Satan casts aspersions against God's word to Adam and Eve. And the, the, the lesson of, of, of Eve's reply, her poor reply, is that instead of wandering a path of reasoning laid down by those who wish to deny the Bible, Christians should stand firmly on the rock of God's word. So what do we do? The next thing is we have Satan's contradiction, top of page 10. He's undermined her trust. He's mischaracterized the character of God. He's mischaracterized the command of God as being overly restrictive, overly prohibitive, not in her best interest. So what does he do now uh, in, in verse 4? He denies judgment. You will not surely die. And in the original language, if you were to look at it, the, the negative lo, which means no, is, is placed in front, and it emphasizes, no, you are not going to die. You are not, it, it's, it's, it's right in the face of God. You will not die. It couldn't be more emphatic. You could not deny God's word more clearly, more emphatically than what Satan just did. He didn't start that way, did he? No, he didn't. What did he do first? He undermined trust. He got Eve into a, a, a situation where she was compromising on God's word and not trusting in the character of God. And then he goes right to the jugular and he denies judgment. No, you are not going to die. And, and so then divine judgment is, is denied. And, and note that the, the divine doctrine of divine judgment is the very first doctrine to be denied. It happens today in liberal circles. Hell? A literal hell? No. Eternal hell? No, no, not, not eternal. Um, it, 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 maybe it's purgatory. Maybe you kind of burn off your sins over a period of eons. No, maybe it's limbo. Maybe it's reincarnation. Maybe it's second chance. Maybe it's whatever it is, eternal conscious torment. That's the biblical definition of hell. That's under attack. The attack on eternal judgment is under attack. Why would Satan undermine the doctrine of eternal judgment? Because he wants to take people there with him. He wants to take you there with him. He wants, to, 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 he wants you to understand that he, he wants you to believe that the gospel isn't necessary, that, that hell isn't real, that you will not ultimately face a righteous God, that there is no great white throne judgment. To undermine the, the, undermine the eternal conscious torment of hell is to undermine the very essence of what, what is salvation all about? Who is it to save you from? God. R.C. Sproul said of you to be saved from God. Why? Because God will ultimately be the one to whom we must all give an account. It is appointed to man after that to die once, and after that comes what? Judgment. There is no second chance. Why do you think it is that Satan went directly after the doctrine of eternal judgment? Because he wants to take you along with him there. He knows that's his destiny, and he wants you to go there right along with him. He hates your soul. He's a murderer from the beginning and a liar. And this is how he operated in, in, in Eve's life. So the pathology of, of dissent, Satan offers a question based on a perversion of God's word. Number two, Eve begins to question herself, begins with a revision of God's word. Number three, Satan then declares God's word as wrong. What should have happened? 
Eve should have run immediately to, to, to Adam. Adam sh- and, and it's not just Eve. Adam should have stepped up and, and uphold the good word of God on, on her behalf. And, and notice what, what the devil does. This is very important. He, he attacks God's goodness, folks. What, what happens? He, he says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to be like God? And so that, that puts God in, a, in, a, in an ugly light, and, and it's basically saying God doesn't want you to be like him. He, he doesn't want you to be like him. And, and so it, it's an attack on the very goodness of God. At the top of page 11, um, the lie, there, there were two lures in, in all of this. Number one, the lure bore the lure, the, the lure of divinity. You will be like God. And sin has this intrinsic uh, desire that you'll be like God. It, it, you'll be even better na- later than you are right now. And number two, it held out the lure not only of divinity, but moral autonomy, that you can choose your own life without any recourse, that you'll be like God, and that you can make your own decisions without any implications whatsoever from a, a holy God. So what do you do? And there are a number of ways that we can approach this. Let me just uh, touch on these. I'm going to go over to page 12. I'm going to be brief about this. You can look at the notes. Uh, But number one, uh, down at the bottom, uh, Satan did not alert Eve to her vulnerability. She stood alone when she was being tempted. No one should stand alone. When When you're under temptation, seek help. Go to God's Word. Go to an elder, go to your husband if you're a wife, go to another brother, uh, seek help if you're under temptation, go to God, pray to him. Don't, don't try to do it on your own. The, this, we know that the verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, as God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it also. But you know the previous verse, verse 12, let no one, therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Nobody wants to, we forget verse 12. That's so important. Don't think you can stand on your own. Verse 12 precedes verse 13. So yes, God provides a way of escape, but don't think you can do it on your own. That's exactly what verse 12 is all about. So number one, recognize your own vulnerability. Number two, page 13, a Christian woman should marry a sound Christian man and benefit from his counsel. And a Christian man should marry godly women and consult with them for their spiritual advice. Fathers, Christian fathers, should place themselves and their families under sound spiritual leadership in faithful Bible teaching. Number three, church leaders must ensure that no false teaching arises in their ministries, knowing how much damage occurs by a perversion of God's Word. Uh, Number four, uh, knowing that the attack was on the truth about God. We spent 31 weeks looking at the, the character of God. We, we literally did a series in the 2 o'clock uh, hour on the doctrine of, of God himself. But one commentator said this, the serpent's tactic is to create a false impression of God himself. Genesis teaches us that temptation can work by means of lies distorting the truth about God, which can make sin seem sensible and attractive. And then five, number, finally, one final lesson. Uh, and that is the Word of God itself. Uh, and and we, you saw how important it was when Eve began to soften God's Word, deny God, uh, began to take 
um, to diminish God's word and to add to God's word, God's word must be treated with the ultimate precision. We don't add to it. We don't diminish it. We don't soften it. We take it literally, absolutely literally. That's why we don't study a paraphrase. We study a very careful translation of God's word, and we memorize word for word. We don't memorize paraphrases. We, we study the, 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 the exact teaching of God's word with precision. And so the, the value of God's word itself. So what we have here is this anatomy of temptation. And I think you've seen the, the, the way that Satan introduced doubt, distrust. Uh, we see the, the way that he capitalized on the, the weakness of Eve. We see the fact that Eve did not seek the direction of her husband. And frankly, Adam, even though he may not have been immediately there, his job, uh, he was there with her at some point. And his responsibility was to protect her, to shepherd her, to guide her, to guard her. And that obviously didn't take place. He joined her in willing transgression against God. And so we, we see this, and, and you've got the anatomy of the fall. And, and Satan operates exactly today as he did in Genesis 3. None of this has changed. So to be forewarned is to be forearmed, because our enemy still continues to prowl about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour.